This month we've been talking about the privilege and responsibility of being witnesses, what it means to be the connecting link between the gospel and those who have not come to know the love of Jesus Christ yet. And yet we can acknowledge that perhaps this responsibility of being a witness is one of the most anxiety-producing things in our own Christian life. Does it feel like you have perhaps stepped into the incompetent zone of your own faith when it comes to being a verbal witness and and sharing the message of the gospel with those around you? We might wonder, well, how do I bring up the subject? What do I say? How do I talk to that difficult family member? We may feel quite tongue-tied and stammer when it comes to these kinds of things. You might say to me, Greg, uh, ask me to serve at the food pantry. I can do that. Act as a greeter or usher at church on Sunday morning, no problem. Even teach Sunday school on occasion. That may stretch me, but I think I could probably do that. But offer a coherent presentation of the gospel, that scares me to death. (laughs) And our anxiety really can kind of stifle our witness to Christ, can it? There's a story told of a country teenager who was drafted into the army His small country church held an all-night prayer vigil before him before he left for basic training. They prayed fervently that he would be a consistent witness and he wouldn't lose his faith when he was exposed to all the negative influences around him. And so when this young man came back from basic training, the church gathered together to hear the report of how things went. And he said, things are just great. I've been in the army for six months and nobody's found out yet that I'm a Christian. Well, I guess anonymity is one way to deal with our anxiety, but not the healthiest way. So last Sunday, we began to consider what are the healthy ways to reduce our anxiety about being a witness so that we can be freed to be authentic and joyful so that the life of Christ does flow naturally from us. So last week, I raised uh, up three insights and points from our passages of Scripture, and this morning, I'd like to add three more to that. Our focus of our scripture is from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. And what I would like you to do is open your Bibles this morning. Uh, Take them out of the pews. You can turn to 1641 in those Bibles or your own. And keep them open. Keep them on your lap as we look at this passage of scripture. I'm not going to read it all at once. I'm going to take us through the text slowly this morning. And you'll see the story unfold. And let me, for a few minutes just review some of the insights that we looked at last week for those of you who weren't here or for those whose memory, like mine, would have long since lapsed. And then we will build on three more insights of anxiety reduction uh, this morning. The first anxiety reduction insight comes from the model of John the Baptist. It is less of me and more of God. So we read in John 1, 35 through 37, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, John's our model of humility here. His sole purpose was to point to the Christ who was to come after him. And even though John was at the height of his popularity, when Jesus came on the scene, he released two of his disciples to go and follow Jesus. I think the message for us is witness out of humility, not out of superiority. To the extent that we have a tinge of judgmentalism, a tone of condemnation where we think we occupy moral high ground, 
people will have a very difficult time listening to our witness. But if we can follow the spirit of witness that the missionary D.T. Niles offered, he said, witness is simply one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's the spirit of humility that I think provides a kind of insight for us to reduce anxiety. Second anxiety reduction insight that we looked at last week was that conversion is a process of which we are just one part. Note verse 37. We read, when the two disciples heard him say this, heard Jesus say this, or John say this, they followed Jesus. Some people at this weekend's Harvest Crusade, are, I think, are like these two disciples. They are ripe for the picking. They are ready to fall from the tree into the harvester's basket. And that was true, certainly, of these two disciples. When John pointed to Jesus, they were ready to go. But we don't see the process that brought them to that point, do we? And I said last week, think of conversion as like going from zero to 100. 100 being that line that you cross when you finally put your trust in Christ and start down that road of discipleship. And it can be a fairly long journey. Our role is to move people along that scale, maybe five points or 10 points. We don't have to be the end all and be all. We don't have to give the complete spiel in Jesus and at the end of that spiel have somebody be converted. But we can be a part of that process that helps in that because God's kingdom is bigger than we are and he brings a lot of inputs to people's life beyond our own life. Anxiety reducing insight number three. Ask probing questions and listen carefully to the hearts of those around us. Jesus sensing two disciples following him, we read in verse 38 that he's turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? We noted a softer question in the translation out of the New Revised Standard Version. What are you looking for? You know, in our listening to others, then we can hear what people are looking for, what they're longing for. I think the best evangelistic tool we have are these two things on the side of our ears, on our side of our head, our ears, that when we listen, we can hear where people are. It's been said that uh, we have been given two ears and one mouth. Note the ratio and respond accordingly. If we listen with our hearts, we begin to hear the real stuff in people's lives. And then we can build a bridge to those things in their life and provide the message of the gospel in that way. And now we move into some new insights here, anxiety-reducing insight number four in our text. Ask people to investigate Jesus. In response to, the, to Jesus' question, what are you looking for, two of John's disciples had a question of their own. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, these two disciples weren't interested in just a casual, brief conversation. They wanted to come and spend some time with Jesus and check out who this person really is. Was he the Messiah or not? And so in this whole issue of investigating Jesus, we really have come to the crux of the matter. Any genuine quest must center on the investigation of the identity of Jesus. The entirety of the Christian faith comes down to this question. Who is Jesus? Who does he think he is anyway? And I think on almost every page of the New Testament, you are forced to ask the question, does this guy think he's God or something? That's the heart of the matter. 
Even in our short text, we have two titles that point to Jesus as the God-man. We notice that uh, John says, behold the Lamb of God. Who did John think Jesus was? Well, the Lamb of God was certainly related to the Passover, wasn't it? That one-year-old lamb that was sacrificed so that the blood was put on the doorposts, and when that angel of death went through Egypt, that the angel of death would pass over those houses that were covered by the blood of the lamb. And so what is John saying Jesus is? He is that Passover lamb, that sacrificial lamb, the one who offered up his life on our behalf, bearing our guilt and shame so that we would not have to bear it. He's the sacrifice for us. And we note also here that he's called the Messiah in our text. A little bit later on, we'll look at the fact that Andrew comes running back to Peter and says, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer that we have been long expecting to come. So any witness to our faith has to get around to the point of the identity of Jesus. And we have to admit, this is the great divide, isn't it? This is the the place where people stumble. This is the one that's hard to accept, that Jesus is the God-man. I cut out an advertisement some time ago from the Los Angeles Times that bore the headlines that you see on the screen. The Messiah has come, and his name is Yeshua. The text goes on to read, Yeshua? Yeah, that's his name. You've never heard of him? Sure you have. His common name is Jesus. Yeshua is the Jewish way to say his name. He's very Jewish, you know. And I was very interested to read over the next number of days the letters to the editors that came into the Los Angeles Times in response to this particular ad. And, of course, it was all around this whole issue of the divinity of Christ. One person said, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. We're just misunderstanding things when he says, I and the Father are one. Another person wrote, and I think very insightfully, perhaps the principal objection to Christianity and the part of Judaism and Islam is the deification of Jesus. Not perhaps. It is. Eventually, we have to get around to checking out who Jesus actually is. In 1997, my wife and I led a mission trip to to Turkey. We were invited by a Campus Crusade missionary who had been there for 13 years uh, to come bring a group. We brought a group of about 40. And his ruse for being in country was that he was a travel agent. Uh, You don't write missionary on your visa and go to Turkey. It's 98% plus Muslim. So he was a travel agent, and that's what we were there for, supposedly, to see the seven churches of Revelation, the various sites that, of churches that Paul had established there. But one of the most delightful persons we met on that trip was our tour guide, our Turkish tour guide by the name of Gurkhan. Gurkhan was the only officially certified Christian tour guide in the entire country of Turkey. At the time we were there, Gurkhan was a 28 26, excuse me, 27-year-old single man who desperately wanted to find a Christian wife. And then he told us his journey to faith. He was raised in a Muslim family, a staunch Muslim family. During his teenage years, he became a fanatical Muslim. 
And then one of the ways he expressed this fanaticism was he went to the American Bible Society offices in Istanbul, and he argued with the proprietors of that store about Allah being the true God and Muhammad being the messenger of God. He was so rabid, he would picket the store to keep people from coming in to be exposed to the message of the gospel. But what finally got to him was the way the Christians who ran that store treated him. Even though he was haranguing them, they treated him with graciousness, love, and patience. And then finally they said, we want to offer you a challenge, Gurkhan. Compare the person and life of Jesus Christ to the person and life of Muhammad. And Gurkhan took up that challenge. And he finally came to the point of believing that Jesus, in fact, was the God-man and converted to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus in the midst of that culture. Well, you know the cost that he had to pay. <laughs> a funeral was held by his family. He was dead to them, had almost no support, thus his inability to find a Christian wife at the age of 27. But he had remained true to his faith. Eventually, we have to get around to asking people to check out who is this person? Would they be willing to investigate who Christ is? One of the resources that we have to do that is a wonderful book by Lee Strobel called A Case for Christ. Sometimes people will be willing to dig in more fully as this book offers. Lee Strobel was an attorney, an investigative journalist, and that's the angle which he writes this book, investigating could Jesus be, in fact, the one claimed to be. Sometimes we just might need something smaller and... Uh, InterVarsity Press puts out these wonderful booklets as you see on the screen there, Becoming a Christian, What is Christianity? The Evidence for the Resurrection, Have You Considered Him? And we can hand these to people and say, you know, would you read this? I challenge you to read this and then come back and talk to me about it. We have these in our bookstore this morning as well as the Lee Strobel book that you could pick up and have available when you come across someone that you would want to hand a booklet to like that. They would say you know, here, read this and investigate who Jesus is. The fifth anxiety-reducing insight that we come across in our text is share out of the joy of discovery. I think witness at its best is certainly contagious joy, isn't it? And that's what we see in the person of Andrew. Verses 40 and 41. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Now Andrew, I think, just couldn't contain his joy. This is what he'd been living for all of his life, to find the Messiah. It's been true in the nation of Israel for all these years. We have found the Messiah. And he had to go tell somebody. He just had to overflow in ecstasy out of his life. You couldn't stop that from happening. Now I think we have to admit that sometimes the most obnoxious people are new converts, right? I mean, in their enthusiasm, they just run on the mouth about what they have discovered, and disgrace that they have discovered can quickly turn into a club of judgment. Turn or burn, I have found it, now you better find it. <laughs> but the best witness certainly comes winsomely out of an attitude of wonder and gratitude that we have been found by God. I oftentimes imagine, what was it like for the prodigal son 
to be the center attention at a party that his father threw for him when he finally came home. The words that come to my mind are, embarrassed gratitude must have been his feeling to be there. Or I think of the person that was born blind that Jesus heals in John chapter 9. The Pharisees are upset about this healing that's taking place, and so they try to say to this person that has been healed that uh, the person that healed you is a false prophet and a sinner. And I love the authentic response of this person. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Yeah. Witness at its best is a well-lived life, and gratitude is evidenced in a changed life. Story told of a man who was an alcoholic for many years who came to Christ, and he was asked by a skeptic, well, now that you are a Christian, do you believe in the miracles of the New Testament? He answered, yes, I do. The man went on, well, do you believe in the story of Jesus changing water into wine? The converted alcoholic said, I sure do. Then the challenger zeroed in. How can you believe in such nonsense? And the new believer replied this way, I'll tell you how. Because in our house, Jesus changed whiskey into furniture. That's a changed life. Our life is to be our witness. I remember Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, issuing the following challenge. He says, you know, every time we offer to people to respond to Christ, we're asking them to either trade up or trade down. And I think by that he meant, based upon our own quality of life in Christ, are we asking them to trade up or to trade down? Or in other words, would we want people to have the life that we are leading? That's ultimately it, isn't it? If we're offering people Christ, are we saying, I want you to have the life that I had? Are we asking them to trade up or to trade down? And is our life as a community of believers focused on that kind of authentic witness, that authentic joy that draws people in to the life of Christ? One of my favorite books about a generation ago was written by Sheldon Van Alken called A Severe Mercy. I noted on Amazon it's still a bestseller today. And it's the story of how Sheldon Van Alken and his wife, Davy, were students at Oxford University in the early 1950s, and uh, how they came to faith in Christ through the witness of Christians. And as Sheldon tells the story, when they became students at Oxford, they were staunch opponents of the Christian faith. But it was because of their association with Christians that caused them to start thinking differently. And this is the way Van Alken puts it. These were our first friends, close friends at Oxford. More to the point, perhaps all five were keen, committed Christians. But we liked them so much, we forgave them for it. (laughs) We began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not so much of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid, people to keep one's distance from. Then the astonishing facts sank home. Our contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. There's nothing like that sense of authenticity and joy to draw people to Christ. And then our last anxiety-reducing insight, number six. And this is the one I, frankly, almost love the most. (laughs) 
that our best selves await us in Christ. When we are offering Christ to people, we're saying, you know, I'm offering you the gift of being the best self that you can possibly be, the person that God intended you to be. Note our text in verse 42. And he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. What's that word Cephas mean? It's a nickname, isn't it, that Jesus gives to Peter. And what does it mean? Rock. Peter, you are the rock. You are the rock man. I'm giving you a new identity. Now, I must admit here, we preachers love Peter. He is just so easy to make fun of, isn't he? Uh, He's a gift to all of us who preach. Peter the rock? Hardly. Peter the motormouth would be a better kind of description, I think, of Peter. Any thought that comes through his mind comes out of his mouth, right? He's the one who always is responding very impetuously to the, to the inquiries of Jesus. So Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in the next moment, he's being rebuked by Jesus because he's acting on Satan's behalf, keeping Jesus from going to Jerusalem to die on our behalf. Or at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, at the time of his arrest, Peter says, everybody else may fall away, but you can count on me, Jesus, to the end. And what happens to Peter? Well, he crumbles, falls away as well. Peter, the rock, that's his new identity? We're not done yet, though, are we? Then Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes upon the early church. And who is it that's out in Jerusalem publicly proclaiming the message of the Messiah, of the resurrected Christ? It's Peter. He has become what Jesus said he would become. He has taken on his new identity. He is stepping into his best self. When we offer people Christ, we are offering them the opportunity to become their true selves, their best selves, the one that God has designed them to be. The irony is, as Jesus said, when we lose our life for Christ's sake, that's when we what? Find it. I love the closing of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis in his last chapter that he's entitled The New Man. He says, you know, if we are all to become like Christ, then you might think that we just become cookie-cutter images of each other. He said, but that's not the case, is it? And then he uses the image of a spice or salt to look at Jesus in that angle. He says, you know, If there was a new group of people that had never tasted salt and you put a pinch of salt on your tongue and you say, we put that on our food, people would say, oh, then everything is going to taste like salt. No, that's not the case. When you put salt on meat and vegetables, it does what? It draws out the inherent flavor that is already there, and Jesus is like that. He's like the salt that draws out the inherent flavor. And so C.S. Lewis goes on in this chapter, and he says this, The more we get now what we call ourselves out of the way and let him, Christ, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will be too few to express him fully. 
He made them all. He invented as an author, invents characters in a novel, all the different men you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. And that's the paradox, isn't it? As we lose ourselves into Jesus, then we become the selves that we were intended to be. Can you say that when you offer Christ to somebody else, that they will become their best selves because you're becoming your best self? Can I say that about myself? And I say, you better believe it. And you say to me, Ogden, you've got a long way to go. And I say, you are right, but you don't know how far I have come (laughs) in this process. When I look at my life in Christ, I see somebody who has been substantially healed from fear and anxiety so that I can be a risk taker in my life. When I look at myself as a father, I'm somebody who can give love to my daughter and son-in-law and grandchildren in a way that, frankly, my father was never able to do it for me. When I look at God, the passion that God has put into my life to see people discipled and grow up in Christ, I think I've been given a purpose that uh, gives me energy. He's provided me with a life partner in my wife, Lily, who shares a common love for this Christ who unites our life together. Yes, I can truly say that when I'm offering Christ to somebody, I'm offering them the ability to trade up and find our best self. So there have been our prescription for anxiety reduction. Let's just take a minute to review here. Less of me and more of God. Conversion is a process of which we are just one part. Ask probing questions and offer a listening ear. Ask people to investigate Jesus. Share out of the joy of discovery. And know that someone's best self awaits them. As I conclude this message this morning and our emphasis during this month, I want to take us to a poem. Poem written by a man by the name of Sam Shoemaker, who was an Episcopal priest, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. He wrote a wonderful poem called I Stand by the Door. It goes like this I stand by the door, neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world, it's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is the only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing that there must be a door, and yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for want of what is within their grasp. 
They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it, open it, walk in, and find him. So I stand by the door. Let's stand by the door. Let's pray together. Father, give us all the privilege of an opportunity at some point in time in our life of knowing that we have been used of you to help somebody find that door, to put their hand on the latch that opens to just their touch and to see the new life that comes into them because the connection has been made between them and the God who has made them and loved them. Through Christ we pray. Amen.